You're listening to the Just Means Less ACC podcast with your hosts, Micah and Nick. Nick, we are about to get on get on a Zoom call with a very special guest here uh, joining us from Wake Forest Baseball. This was set up by you, Nick. So do you want to tell our, our wonderful listeners who we're going to be talking to here shortly? Probably one of the in college baseball right now, uh, Corey Muscara, the pitching coach, the genius behind all the talent that you saw last year uh, for Wake Forest. Uh, what an interview to start off with uh, before the baseball season. I mean, it, when we talk about, like, who do we want to – the first guy that came to my head, um, very easy get. He's one of the coolest guys. If anyone's ever met Corey before, uh, he's just a guy that you want to sit down with and talk baseball and have a beer with for an hour. Uh, one of my favorite dudes in the whole world. Um, yeah, th- I'm very excited for this. Yeah, it's going to be awesome to be able to pick his brain, kind of see, you know, from his lens what the Omaha trip was like last year, you know, how they're handling, you know, the D1 baseball poll came out. We're talking unanimous number one and what that feels like, you know, how how do they replace some of the key arms? Because obviously, you know, Coach Muscara is big in the, you know, pitching realm. So making sure that, you know, what, what's the replacement for for Rhett Lauder and, and you know, what, what to expect from this unanimous number one team. So uh, with that being said, we're going to, we're going to send it over to this call and uh, looking forward to recapping what we talked to uh, with coach here shortly. This episode is supported by FX's clipped the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX is clipped. Now streaming only on Hulu. All right, you're listening to the Just Means Less ACC podcast with your hosts, Micah and Nick. We have a very special guest on with us today. It's that time of year. And what a way to get things started with uh, Wake Forest's own Corey Muscara, the pitching coach for the Wake Forest Demon Deacons. Moose, how you doing, man? Great. I'm 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 not a hundred percent right now though because I didn't have my Dioli's breakfast sandwich this morning. <laughs> I don't know. Well, if I'm I, not, I wouldn't that. I I wouldn't be there to make it for you because we're on here. So <laughs> Nick, what's the order? Because you seem to know everyone else's order. What's what's coach's order? Oh man, Moose Moose has a special order. He does a he switched it up on us like a couple of weeks ago, but he's got a burrito with roasted turkey, avocado. Sometimes he'll add a hash brown with it. Instead of using the burrito shell, he uses a ciabatta roll, which is elite. And he got, he gets extra meat on it. So Yeah, so um, I, I switched to the ciabatta because, I you know, I, I go there, you know, probably four days a week at least. And uh, <laughs> my wife is gluten-free. So, like, all these years, like, she wouldn't go. And then they found out they had gluten-free bread. And now she's like obsessed. So like she like fiends for a Dioli's breakfast sandwich, like literally every day. And um, 
I, they, I, I don't know how I didn't realize this, but they make their own focaccia and their own ciabatta. And I was like, wow, they're making their own bread. Like, I got to get the ciabatta. And I didn't think you could do the burrito on the ciabatta. And then lo and behold, I, I unlocked a secret. I felt like I was playing a video game with a cheat code, you know? <laughs> it is a real, like every time I make you and your wife's sandwich, it is, it's very good coming off the press. Like I, my mouth is watering when I pull those sandwiches off. So they're I've very, been telling very good. These guys, I've been telling them for at least a year now that the moose sandwich has to be on the menu regularly. <laughs> Everybody that I send to the Oli's, which is a lot of people, I tell them, hey, just order a moose. Just order a moose. So, like, they'll get a phone call, and they'll be like, oh, we'll have a moose burrito. And people are like, oh, moose. And like, no, it's not moose. He just told us to get the moose. And so <laughs> far, like, every single person that's had a moose has been, has been dialed in. I get rave reviews every time. So. Nick, I'm changing one it thing, up. I'm not getting the chicken parm anymore. I'm going to get the moose next time I'm in store. The, the one thing I'm pushing for is they got to get like a chipotle mayo there. If they put the chipotle mayo with the moose burrito, oh, man, we, we'd be talking about like it, it could potentially be the greatest breakfast sandwich of all time. Like it could okay. be 80 grade. Right now, it's probably a 70, maybe a 75 on the 2080 scale. But if we add some Chipotle mayo, I'm telling you, that's an 80-grade breakfast sandwich. It'll be the best breakfast sandwich in the history of mankind. Just how does uh, how does pesto mayo sound? It's good, but we got to have a little bit of spice. You got the roasted red peppers. You got the avocado in there. You know, we got to have that, like, little, like, you know, that little that I'll little do. I'll do pesto mayo on it because we make the pesto in-house, too. And then we have these jardinera peppers that we get from Chicago. So – I'll add a little bit of that to it, and uh, and then we'll see if we can get that eighty grade. I mean, it's I'm telling you, it's elite already. There's not a lot of seventy grades in the draft, but I mean, we're talking, you know, there nobody has an eighty grade tool. So if you're if you're eighty grade in a sandwich, that's pretty good, you know. <laughs> well, we'll add it. I'll starving. add it for you. I am now starving. So, <laughs> Nick, uh, how's the delivery work for Tennessee? Do you guys, by any chance, you know, have the ability to deliver over here to East Tennessee? Or is that, uh, is that too too far out of the range? <laughs> That's too far. I'm sorry, Micah. You're going to have to come to one of the games this year. I guess, so I guess opening weekend, I'll have to make the trip. Um, awesome. You know, well, you know what I, you know what I haven't realized in all my, my time going into the every morning. Um, I see the San Francisco giants background there and Joe panic is the man. He's a good friend of mine. And, uh, when no I was way. at St. John's, I was lucky enough that Joe would come and work out like every morning for like two years. In fact, Coach Wessinger here was uh, roommates with Joe for a while. They played together at St. John's. And I can tell you unequivocally that Joe Panic is one of the best people I've ever met in my life. Like he is just salt of the earth, unbelievable, like great human being. Um, he still supports St. John's baseball quite a bit. Um, but he truly is like one of the good guys. Like he is such a good dude, man. Like if you have a problem with Joe panic, you're probably the problem, not Joe. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. He's, Un he's very, a really good guy. Very much an underrated player in that 2014 world series run. I mean, that double play he made with Brandon Crawford was just lives in my head rent free. And Joe was Joe panic was my dad's favorite player in that world series run. He is, he was elite that world series. It was great. Love it was Joe. awesome. That, that play is like probably one of the top five plays in World Series histories. 
Oh, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. Backhand layout with the glove flip. That one is that the one you're talking about? Yep, yep. And then they had to go under review to make sure it was a double play, and it was, and it was awesome. He made a play because um, he got hurt after that, um, and he went. He got optioned down to AAA for a little bit, and he was coming back. And he made one of the greatest plays I've ever seen. It was like a sliding glove play to the four hole where he like flipped over and threw it from his back to second base. It was like, and it like had like a, it kicked up on the hop. It was sick. It was such a sick play, but yeah. I guess that's how you win a gold glove. You know what I mean? He's the man. I love Joe. <laughs> yeah. Very underrated player. Really, really good person. So yeah. Yeah, someday I'll have, you know what I'll have to do? I'll have to, I'll have to hit up Joe someday and get you like a signed picture or something like that so you can put it up in Dioli's. Absolutely would love that. I would yeah, love that. that needs to happen. We're gonna, I'm going to have to call Joe up and make that happen. Maybe we'll get <laughs> Joe on here as a, a podcast guest for you. Oh, that would be great. That would be great. His, we can get. So his brother, his brother Paul, is uh, the hitting coach at William & Mary. And Paulie's a man. Like, he's a really, really good dude. So, um Maybe he could be another guest for you someday on this this podcast. Would love that. Absolutely. All right. Well, awesome. let's fire it away. Let's start it up. What questions you got for me? Well, I guess we'll just go with the one that I think is the most, uh, I guess, pertinent right now. The most, uh, you know, obviously D1 baseball's preseason top 25 dropped yesterday. Every poll, I think, in America right now has the Wake Forest Demon Deacons as the unanimous number one. So, what does that feel like for you all? I mean, obviously you said I've had to climb a mountain, you know, from, you know, just in two or three years, we're talking about a, a, a too early bounce in the NCAA tournament two years ago to obviously, you know, one of the best games in the history of college baseball. Fortunately, didn't go the deep way last year in Omaha. So now obviously preseason number one, what does that expectation like feel like first off? Like, is it kind of a, is there some celebration in that or is it just purely just back to the grindstone head down, go to work. Yeah. I mean, I think Nick Saban said it best, right? Like, you know, the, the, the preseason and the media and the attention is kind of rat poison, you know? Um, and I hate to be like such a doomsdayer, but they don't hand out participation trophies, right? Like that doesn't actually mean anything. So it's nice for the guys. It's, you know, it's good for the program. Um, but like, if we lean into that too much, then we're, we're forgetting the most valuable pieces. And I think you have to allow yourself to stay hungry. And so for us, like it's about really staying consistent with our habits. It's about making sure we have good routines. It's about making sure that we um, lean into the things that really matter, you know, and, and, and it's not rankings. Rankings don't matter. You know, it, what matters is how you prepare every day. What matters is how you think and, and what you feel and how you believe. And you have to be intentional about protecting that. The second you feel like you've already arrived, you're not very good, you know? So um, I think it, it's important to believe that you're good. It's important to believe that you can be elite. It's important to believe that you can win. Um, but you can't worry about those things. They're not inside of our control, you know? And we're gonna hit adversity um, and it's inevitable. Right. So like we have to be able to understand that we have systems in place that allow us to stay grounded, stay focused, stay present um, and, and, and look inside of ourselves and not to the general outside world. Which, to be honest with you, is probably the hardest thing to do nowadays, because 
everything is a social media world, you know, like I've been doing this for 15 years and, you know, the amount of podcasts and interview that like, you know, are, are out there every day, you, you go on social media and, and there's something every day, you know, and, and if you, if you really want to buy into that, like, that's not going to help you, you know, like that, that, that's not a driver, you know? So um, we talk about that with our guys. We talk about um, having really good routines in place to stay grounded and to stay centered. And, you know, that's ultimately going to be what allows us to be successful not when someone writes about us, you know? Absolutely. Um, Nick, what do you got for coach? I can see you're chomping at the bit to ask something. <laughs> uh, all right, Corey. So last year we knew the staff, uh, Brett and um, Josh, you had a breakout star last year in Seth Keener coming out of the pen. And towards the end of the season, he was starting games for you guys. He started one of the regional games. He was the first guy out of the pen. Who can we expect out of the Wake Forest bullpen to maybe fill that role that Seth Keener played? Well, I mean, he did a great job, right? Like um, where he came from, even from the start of the preseason to the end of the year is, is nothing short of remarkable, you know, like Seth, I'm sure you could get Seth on here someday. He's a, he's an avid deal. Yeah. Customer. Um, but avid. Uh, yeah, he, so like, you know, Seth, Seth always had a good arm and Seth is a really, you know, right thinker. Um, he's very opinionated. He has, he's very passionate. Um, and he, he, he made a lot of jumps in terms of like making his stuff better but I actually was talking about this yesterday, you know, in our preseason, he was really struggling and it wasn't his stuff. Like if you look metrically at his stuff, it was really good, but his strategy needed to change and his approach needed to change. And um, he was, he was failing. And I think sometimes when we struggle or we fail, we, you know, it, it sets us off tilt. And to his credit, he, he allowed his struggles to remap his approach. Right. So, about a week or two before the preseason, um, he totally changed how he looked at pitching, right? He totally changed his, his design and his strategy. Um, he made a rubber side adjustment. He changed his pitch sequencing. Um, he changed, like he started throwing a two seamer. So he made all these epic changes and it's all a credit to him that um, he didn't take it personal when we told him that, Hey man, like you're not doing well. He's like, yeah, I can tell, you know? And, um, and then unfortunately we had an injury to Teddy McGraw, um, that kind of thrusted Keener into a role. Like he started opening day because Teddy got hurt, um, you know, right before the season started and, uh, how we had built guys up, like he was really the only guy available to start. So we went from like about a week or two before the season saying, we got to change everything we're doing right now to all of a sudden he's starting on opening day. And, um, he got in a groove about the three quarter way of the season where I think at one point he was leading the country in ERA and he went from, you know, a fringe draft guy to went in the third round and he was an all American, you know? So I don't know that anyone saw that one coming. Um, I think we all knew that he had the talent to do this. Um, but it's literally all a credit to him. Like he, he didn't feel sorry for himself. He allowed, um, you know, the game to tell him what he needed to do and he made the adjustment and he really leaned into it. And then he got confident and confidence is dangerous. You know, like you start believing in yourself, you start believing in your strategy and your approach and literally anything's possible. 
So one of the cooler things I've seen, you know, like I don't know that I've ever seen somebody um, really struggle to get people out in inner squads and then turn into an All-American and a third rounder. Um, but he did it. And it's really a credit to his personality, his makeup, who he is as a person. I love coaching Seth Keener. Now, he's a lot of fun to coach. He made me better as a coach. He challenged me. Um, he's not one of those guys that's a yes man. He's not going to just do whatever you tell him. He, he wants to have um, some information behind it. But if you can present the information in a way that's tangible, like he'll be all in. And then when he starts to have success, he, he rolls with it. Um, so to, to that point, like who could be that guy this year? We have some really good young arms that have good stuff, um, but you don't really know how they're going to respond until they really meet adversity, until the bullets start flying, you know. Candidates that I feel like could be breakout that have the stuff to do this, um, you know, we have two freshmen um, that I think are pretty good and Hayden Lafew and Blake Morningstar. Um, we have two other, three other freshmen that I kind of like a lot that have really good stuff and we need to, we need to continue to develop them and, and get them seasoned. And, and Gun, uh, Josh Gunther, Cam Nelson, and Andrew Koshy, they're all a little different. They're all a little unique. So I'm really excited about those five freshmen. Um, a guy from last year that's improved exponentially that I'm really proud of is Will Ray. He was an outfielder that we turned into a low slot pitcher. He threw over the top from the outfield and hadn't pitched even in high school and we turned him into a low slot guy again about three weeks before the season started. And he got a lot of appearances for us last year and he's continued to improve his arsenal and uh, his command has improved. So he's an interesting guy. Um, you know, those are, those are probably six guys right there that like have really good stuff that be intriguing to see how they handle, you know, high leverage moments and, and, and adversity and things like that. So I mean, we have other guys too, you know, like you just really never know how guys are going to develop and what, you know, what's going to come. Um, but uh, I'm excited. I mean, I'm excited for those guys and we have a lot of work to do, but if they can stay in the present moment, they got a shot, you know. How has, yeah. you know, obviously the, the big transfer piece, Chase Burns comes in and, you know, that's been the, you know, claim to be the replacement for Rhett Louder. Everything you see is that, you know, Chase chose to come to Wake Forest because of how he was welcomed and how the family was. You know, how is how has Chase adapted to everything? How is how does it you know, how going into this season, you know, how excited are you to have him, you know, on your team now? Because, you know, Nick and I got to watch him in Omaha last year. Uh, I mean, it's, he's one of the best arms I've, I've ever seen from just the overall you know, velocity he can get, and he seems to play with insane passion, obviously, as we saw in the NCAA regionals with Clemson, you know, what's it like having him in that, in that, in that room um, with obviously some really good returners such as, you know, you know, Massey and, and such. Yeah. So he's blown me away with how good of a teammate he is. Um, when he's, when you're not around him on a day-to-day -day basis, he seems very standoffish he's not the greatest communicator to text messages and phone calls. So you kind of like sit there and like, all right, well, is he into himself? Like what's his deal? But then he gets around the team and he is an absolute joy. Uh, he makes the room better every day. He's on, he's not selfish at all. Um, the guys love him. Um, every day he's been here 
he's made the room better. Um, I think his real superpower is he loves to compete. It's like, you know, like uh, we've had, we've been fortunate enough to have some guys that really like to compete. Um, but, you know, Chase is one of those guys that like, he'll be really quiet. You know, you don't think he's, it's almost like he has an alter ego when he steps on the mound and, and I, and not just on the mound, but like you see it in a lot of things. Like he, he basically willed his team to our Omaha challenge, put a team on a bat on, put the team on his back and just carried them. And anytime we do anything like, you know, competing is a big part of what we do here. We track wins and losses and everything. We try to find ways to compete, whether it's, you know, chess, cornhole, monopoly, pick up basketball, like whatever we can find. Like we try to find ways to engage the guys through competition. And it's almost like he dials it up every time. He goes from this quiet standoffish dude to all of a sudden he's like, like, who is this guy? Like, he's not the same person, you know? Um, so that's been really fun to be around. Um, he's been really receptive to coaching. Uh, I'm proud of all the work he's done on his delivery. It's gotten a lot better. Uh, it's cleaner. It's more efficient. Um, you know, we have to work a little bit on our location strategy and leveraging counts, but he understands that. He has a good grasp of it. Um, so again, like, you know, there's all the hype in the world on this guy. And it's like, like if you're sitting there telling somebody how good they are all the time, you know, confidence is important, but like you also need to be able to be objective and give them measures to get better. You know, telling someone how great they are isn't allowing them to grow, you know, and there's always something that we can be doing to get better. And he's very open to that. He's very open to um, coaching. He's very open to whatever it is. I, I've yet to see an ounce of resistance on him and any information that's been given to him. And I've been, you know, whatever happens this year happens, but I'm just really proud of him for who he is as a person. I'm really proud of like how he's interacted with our team. And I, I enjoy seeing him every day. He puts a smile on my face when I come to the yard. And, you know, that's one of the big things I talk about in the recruiting process, you know, like everybody talks about trying to get talent and trying to get the best players. Right. But like, it's not about getting the best players. It's about getting the right player you know, and the right player interacts with his team really well. The right player adds to the room every day. The right player can take hard coaching. The right player um, is striving to get better through objective information daily. The right player loves to compete and he does all those things. And so, yeah, I get it. He throws hard. I get it. He's highly touted. He's had success, but past success or past failures is not predictive of future success or future failures. The only way you could ever really predict the future or affect the future is in the present moment. And being present is showing up with intention, showing up with energy, showing up with focus, showing up with an open mind. He does those things really well. So I love coaching him. He's been a joy. He's exceeded my expectations for who he is as a person. His parents have done a good job raising him. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm a big Chase Burns fan. It's hard not to be. I think everybody in this building would echo the same sentiment. Meeting Chase. But Nick. Yeah, just like what, how you described him is pretty much on point in the interactions I've had with him where he was coming into the deli a lot with Josh and a lot of the guys like showing him around town. You could tell that he was, you know, kind of standoffish, all of that. But the more you talk to him, the more he opens up, the more 
you can see how he's a team player and how that that's just him. And I think that's a good thing to have, you know, keep yourself a little humbled, not, you know, be like that type of guy, but he, he's a great kid to talk to. Um, he, he really does open up when you talk to him. He's got an unbelievable sense of humor. He can laugh at himself. Yeah. He can, he can bring levity to most situations and you would never expect that with the standoffish, you know, like with that initial interaction, which I really admire, right? Like he's not coming in trying to like talk about himself or, you know, how great am I? Like he's just kind of watching everything unfold. And then he's got really good comedic timing. You know, he's, he's got a really good feel for that. And uh, it's awesome. So. Last question I have, and it's one that I'm sure our listeners are going to appreciate because uh, yesterday we tweeted our ballpark of the day. It was the couch. And there's a, a wonderful debate in the comment section about the uh, Little League park that is known as the couch. Um, so I wanted to ask you, because, you know, no, no one ever talks about what it's like to pitch there all the time. Everyone's like, well, of course they're hitting home runs. It's a Little League ballpark, yada, 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 yada. But your guys have to go out there and pitch. 20, 30 times a year inside that ballpark, you know, I guess, does it, does it really affect the pitchers at all? Does it, you know, does it give you guys any sort of advantage when you go to more of a pitcher friendly park across the conference or obviously Omaha is known for being fairly pitcher friendly, you know, kind of what is that like? And and can you kind of address that to our, our listeners that always forget that you have to pitch there 30 times a year? I, I believe it's a huge advantage. Um, and I'll explain why. So obviously it's easy to hit homers at our park, right? But like when an opposing team comes in and you have your little leadoff guy, it's like a, you know, get on base, punch and Judy type of hitter. And he's out there on Thursday night practice hitting homers. He's like, oh my goodness, like, this is great. I'm going to get a couple, I'm going to get a couple of nukes this weekend. And he gets out of his approach, right? So he's getting bigger. He's kind of take. he's getting out of who he is and it, it's, it's like really hard to fight that, right? Like it's just the way it is, you know, like you start seeing the ball travel, like, all right, this is going to be my day. And, and I think that that's something that is not advantageous to the opponent. Um, another thing is like the opposing team comes in and they get a little PTSD, you know, like they have like uh, you hit a little fly ball to right field and it's three Oh four and it's an out on like a 90% probability. And there it's one run, you know? So I think when that happens, you get a little gun shy with the zone and you tend to nibble a little bit, which allows us to be more selective and get base runners. You know, I remember when I first got to wake, a lot of people told me that I was crazy because I'm going to like a really pitcher friendly park and, you know, it's where ERAs go to die. But I, I was coming from a pretty small park at Maryland. You know, Maryland's like 350 in center field. It's not a big ballpark at all. And They've done a lot of construction there, so the dimensions have kind of changed. The wind doesn't really play a factor there as much, and it's a pretty hitter-friendly park and a very homer-friendly park. So I had experienced that a little bit. And what I've realized is, you know, you're going to give up homers. It just is what it is. But you can't care about giving up homers. You have to attack. You're not losing on solo homers. Solo homers don't beat you. You lose when you nibble, you walk a guy or two, and then you give up a three-run job. You know, that's where you get lost. So for us, like homers or whatever, like I talk, our pitching staff, we talk about this all the time. Like, sure, let's get into a home run contest. You know, like, let's see who's going to get more homers. If that's the type of game we're going to play, like I like our odds, you know. So 
I love the couch. I, I really do. I think it allows us to play a little bit of a home field advantage. Um, and I think life is, is all how you perceive things. Right. So do you, do you, you know, Malcolm Gladwell wrote a great book um, called David versus Goliath. And it's a really, really fascinating book. But one of the things it talks about is when you're given a perceived disadvantage, um, how do you, how do you um, adapt and how do you overcome to take that perceived disadvantage and actually make it a strength? You know, um, athletes are some of the greatest um, compensators on the planet. You know, when you really start to study movement and you start to study how people move and what they do, we all have adaptations as human beings. And athletes do a really wonderful job of compensating for movement deficiencies to make them strengths. It's innate in what they do. And you can also compensate for perceived disadvantages psychologically. So once you understand like how to kind of manipulate that, I, I, I value it as a strength and not a weakness. So for me, we could play every game at the couch. I would, I love it. Um, and to your point, when you play at a place, a little bit of a bigger yard, it gives you even more confidence, right? Cause if you're a pitcher, you're like, oh, well, like it's 410 to center field, like good luck, you know? But if that becomes your style and your approach and you're immune to the solo homer, you're going to attack the strike zone more and you're going to be more battle tested, so to speak. Nick, All anything right. else you want to you ask coach? I got two more quick questions for you, coach. So moving away, I know you're, the way, you're the, the, way I, the way I ramble. I don't know if anything's ever quick, but like, <laughs> Before we hopped on, I said Moose is a guy that you just wish you could have a beer with and talk ball all day. So you're fine. Um, moving to the bats real quick. Obviously, the big talk of the town is Nick Kurtz. I mean, Coach, Monday after your first practice, a lot of the guys came in and all they were talking about was Nick hitting a ball so far that it cleared the scoreboard, cleared the trees off of Michael Massey, which – if you're hitting that far off of Michael Massey, then you honestly you're the you're going number one or two in the draft. Like he he's insane. He's on his revenge tour because we know that he got hurt on that last uh game in Omaha. Um we had a lot of bats leave on um, last year's team. Besides Nick, who is a guy that you have seen that could fill in some roles like a Tommy Hawk rule where it's a lot of contact, maybe another Brock or it's hard to replace Brock, but who, wh what kind of bats are we kind of expecting to see? Yeah. I talked about this a lot this fall with our hitting coaches, you know, like, yeah, we lost a lot. You lose a Pierce Bennett, you lose a Bennett Lee, a Tommy Hawk, a Brock Wilkin. I mean, there's some damn good players there, you know, even guys like Cesaria and Costello, they played a, a nice role in our, our lineup last year. Danny Corona got hot at the end. So you're, you're looking to replace a lot of offense, obviously. Um, that being said, and I call pitches against our guys in every inner squad, and I have a really good feel for our hitters. Um, I understand their strengths and weaknesses. I think one of the advantages of being a pitching coach is we spend more time breaking hitters down than we do pitchers sometimes. And I can tell you that this this fall and this pre so well we haven't really done much in the preseason yet you know but like this fall um i felt like our guys were tougher to pitch to top to bottom you know um they had really good approaches 
you couldn't get him out the same way every time. So I like the potential um, for depth in our lineup. I mean, some obvious additions that are very helpful. Um, Seaver King is a gifted player. Um, his bat to ball is really, really good. Um, he gives, he, you know, calling pitches against him is very similar to me to like Tommy White. Um, he doesn't have quite the same raw power that Tommy does. Um, but what I say is like, they swing at a lot of pitches, um, they, but they don't swing and miss. And those guys are scary sometimes because like, if you make, if you throw a cookie or you make a mistake, even if you have the, the best game plan, like they're going to do damage. Um, so Seaver is a really exciting player. Uh, he's got really game changing speed as well. So it's a little bit of a different um, piece to our lineup that we haven't seen that much. So I'm excited about him. Uh, and when he made the move to center field, it almost was like his offense got better too. Um, I know initially he probably wasn't thrilled about going to center field, but he handled it really well and he looks outstanding out there. And I think it allowed him to kind of free up and get even more confidence. But I was really impressed with him this fall. Um, Jake Reinish uh, had an outstanding fall. Uh, he was a, he was a really important player for us in 22. Um, he led the ACC in walks in 22. I think he was like second in on base percentage. We kind of hit him in like the seven or eight hole that year, but I mean, I think he hit like 330 with nine homers, like well over, like close to 500 OBP. And he was just a quality at bat machine. And um, he missed all last fall with an injury. He got hurt on opening day and missed some more time. And he just couldn't really get into a groove to no fault of his own. Like he just battled with so many injuries. And as we know, timing is everything with hitters. And when you're not getting your reps and you're kind of like, you know, it's kind of like quicksand. It's tough to kind of, you know, produce. Um, but he had a really nice fall, and uh, we need we need him to step up. Um, I, I think he's fully capable of doing that. Um, we've seen it in the past, so he, he's an exciting player. Um, Austin Hawk was a really, like, probably my surprise of the fall for me. You know, he didn't really play much in North Carolina. What, weren't sure what we were really getting. You know, we, we knew the brother and we knew he was a good player in high school, but didn't really know what to expect. And uh, he impressed the hell out of me this fall. He's a great defender at second base. Um, very comparable to Justin Johnson, who, for me, Justin Johnson's probably the best defensive second baseman I've ever coached. And Austin Hawk is right there with him. You know, um, I, I'm not ready to say he's exactly J.J. defensively, but he's pretty damn close. And that's really high praise for me. So I love the way he defends. And he gave us a lot of really good at bats, like just quality at bat. He has the same type of toughness and fire in his belly like his brother does. It manifests differently. It might not be quite as swaggy, if you will. It might not be quite as boisterous, but it's a really good at bat. It's it's he understands who he is, the simple approach. Merrick Houston improved dramatically. You know, watching Merrick Houston this fall compared to even last season. You're like, who is this guy? And it, and it showed up right away the first time I saw him when he came back from summer ball. And I looked at him and I'm like, dude, like, did you just live in the weight room? Like he had, I don't know what, I mean, I don't know exactly how much weight he gained, you know, but like just physically looking at him from day one, you're like, bro, like do you eat your Wheaties? Like what's going on? Like he's filled out. He's always had that great wiry athletic frame and he's gotten strong. Longer and he's 
you know, I think the benefit, much like Josh Hartle and Rhett Lauder, you know, playing so much as a freshman and maybe not being 100% ready, but learning how to survive and compete goes such a long way. And, you know, he hit in the nine hole last year and he kind of had to learn how to have some at bats and things of that nature, learn how to sit pitches, learn how to be on time, all those things. And um, he gave us some quality at bats and some production, even though like the numbers don't show that it was great. Um, he actually got better as the season went on and the competition got better the more he played. He had a great summer and he had a phenomenal fall. So I'm excited about him. Uh, he's improved a lot. Um, and, you know, Coach Wessinger and Coach Salento have done a lot with him. Uh, he hits with Wes like every night, basically. And he's gotten a lot better in that regard. Um, he's tough to get inside on. He, he you know, keeps his barrel in the zone for quite a bit. Plus, he can run as well, so he brings another speed element there. Um, and, you know, we, we had the kid, Adam Tellier, um, third baseman from Ball State. He played shortstop there. Another really, really good defender. Um, I joke, I feel like he's like an avatar at third base, like one of the better third basemen I've ever seen. Closes on the ball really well. He's got a really accurate throwing arm. He, too, can run. So I think you're going to see, like, more speed in this lineup. Um, we had like probably like four guys that could get you 20 bases if they needed to, um, which is an element that we've never really had here before. And I think it's super important when you're playing it, you know, a place like Ameritrade to try to manufacture offense. Um, but he also has some pop as well. He had nine homers at Ball State and um, he's an older guy with some experience. So I'm excited about him. Um, we got the kid uh, Tate Ballestero, who's going to, kind of be a little bit of a Swiss army knife in many ways. Like he'll catch some, he'll DH, he'll play some corner outfield. Um, just an older guy that is a Swiss hitter that has had some success in college and can give you some quality at bats. Um, you know, I used to coach at St. John's as we talked about earlier on the show with, you know, Paul, uh, Joe panic played there. I coached there, but that place is a graveyard. Like that's a tough place to hit homers at. Um, it's cold. It's in the Northeast. They have high fences. The field's spacious. The wind cross blows. And he hit, he hit 10 homers there last year. So, like, you know, 10 homers at that place, who knows how many he could hit at our, our friendly confines, you know? Um, so he's, a, he's an interesting player. Cameron Gill is another interesting player. Chris Katz had a good summer. Um, he's got Jack Winnet has improved dramatically. Another one who's really, you know, I'm excited about our lineup. I think it's different. I think we have, you know, maybe we don't have as much proven offense. We don't have those guys that you're like, man, they're just stalwarts. They've been here. They know what they're doing. We don't necessarily have that. But I think one through nine, it's going to be a, a quality of bat producing lineup. It's going to be tough. That's more speed to it. I don't know if we're going to hit as many homers. I don't. But at the same time, like, We've, we've addressed, like, it's not like you need a ton of power to hit homers here. I, I'd rather have guys that just get to be really good at bats and can manufacture offense and work pitch counts and maybe run a little bit. So I'm excited about it. I don't like throwing to these guys. I know that, like, some of these guys are tough to pitch to. So I think if they're tough to pitch to, they should have success, you know. Yeah, it's going to be a completely different lineup, but – the quality at bats, you guys have always been really good at that. So the fact that they could be better is just crazy. Um, my last question. 
So the ACC top to bottom is a very, very good conference. I think projected they were, the ACC is going to get eight teams in the regionals. Um, Last year, you guys avoided playing Carolina and Virginia, Virginia being one of the, you know, other top teams in this conference made the run to Omaha this year. You're, you are going to be playing both of them. What's the approach like going into those two teams where Carolina made it to the regionals, Virginia made it all the way to Omaha. I mean, the conference is just stacked. You guys are going to NC state. You guys are going are open up with Duke for conference play. What's the approach like playing those two teams? Yeah, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. There's so many good teams in our league. That's why you can't you can't sit there and feel good about anything. You know, you got to prepare. Um, as far as the teams in our league, we'll we'll start with Carolina and Virginia, the two teams you asked about. Look, Virginia is as well coached a baseball team as you're ever going to see. I think the world of their coaching staff, they have an exceptional coaching staff. Like every aspect of their coaching staff is elite. The head coach Brian O'Connor is a stud. He's got great energy. He's a competitive dude. He, he runs a phenomenal program. Like I, I have the highest level of respect for Brian O'Connor. You know, they have a hitting coach who's uh, a, essentially a legend. He's as good a hitting coach as there's been in our sport for the last 20 years in Kevin McMullen. And um, Drew Dickinson is one of the best pitching coaches in the country. Right. So like, and their volunteer, I'm mistaken on his name, but he's been there for a long time as well. And, and from everything I've gathered, he's a great coach. So they have a phenomenal coaching staff. Like they really are a, a dual threat in every capacity. And it's Virginia. It's a great school. Um, they have great facilities. They have a great program, a great history of success. So like they are going to be tough in preparing for Virginia. They're one of those teams that like they have great approaches. Like they know what your strengths are. They know what your weaknesses are. They're going to try to find ways to exploit you. They're going to play really good baseball. They're going to play really high level catch. So they're always going to be a problem. You know, I think Dickinson calls a great game. Like I can't say enough good about them. Like I, they have my highest vote of confidence in a team. And uh, I think they're exceptional and it's going to be a dog fight and we better show up to play because they're going to be really, really good. I love their shortstop Griffo Farrell. I, I think he's a phenomenal player. He's the heartbeat of their team. Um, the the left-handed DH, uh, what is it, Anderson? Is that right? Um, he's got power out the wazoo. Like, he's got juice. They got a lot of good arms. They had the freshman last year, Jack O'Connor, who's a good arm. He's going to be better this year. Um, they got good bullpen and, and, and a lot of different looks. They have, uh, you know, Wolf Fork, who they, maybe they'll start this year. I'm not sure, but he's, he's a great bullpen option. They got the left-hander, uh, who was, I think was a freshman last year, um, from Massachusetts, who's a, a pretty good arm. Um, they got some transfer guys like it's Virginia. They're always good. That's why Brian O'Connor's a hall of famer, right? Like, I mean, Kevin McMullen might, might be the best assistant coach in college baseball last 20 years. You don't have that type of school with that type of brand and that type of facility and that good of coaches and not be good. Like, you know, for me, for my money, they're one of the five best programs in college baseball the last 20 years. You know, like they're as good as it gets. It's going to be a battle. Um, North Carolina, you know, they brought in a phenomenal, talented Fred class. You know, from everything I've seen, they have phenomenal arms. They return some really good arms. So, they're going to be tough. Um, 
they have Honeycutt, who's electric. You know, he's an absolute electric factory. Really good player. Um, he can beat you a lot of different ways with his feet, with his power, with his defense. Uh, he's probably going to be a top 10 pick. They got Azuna back, who's got a lot of power. I know he battled some injuries last year, but I mean, he had 20 homers the year before. They got some middle guys that can really hit, and uh, they have a lot of arms. They have a lot of depth. They have a lot of good returning experienced arms, and they brought in some big-time firepower. So that'll be a challenge, you know. Um, they played really well down the stretch in 22 to win the ACC tournament and to get to a super. And, um, you know, perhaps due to some injuries and for whatever reason, maybe last year um, wasn't quite as good as the year prior. But they returned, like, all their guys pretty much. I mean, they lose, like, I think they lost, like, two or three key factors, and um, they brought in an immense amount of talent. So it's going to be tough. Uh, I think Duke's pitching staff is elite. I mean, that pitching staff top to bottom is ferocious. They have a lot of different looks. They're really tough um, to game plan for. Um, and I think their their pitching staff can go toe-to-toe with anyone. Um Ty Blankmeyer is like my little brother. Um, I think he's one of the best infield minds there is. So I know they're going to play catch. He's going to get them to play catch at a high level. So when you're playing those guys, you're going to have, you're going to be playing a lot of one run ball games because they have as good a pitching staff as you're ever going to see. And they're going to play really sound defense. And I think their pitching coach does a great job. Um, Brady Kirkpatrick, he really knows how to optimize their strengths. Um, the hitting, the hitting guy, Eric Tyler is, uh, an energy changer. He, you know, anytime you're around him, he's going to put you in a good mental headspace and he's going to make you feel like a champion. So again, I think their coaching staff is awesome. Like, uh, you know, Scott or Scott, Chris Pollard is, um, phenomenal leader, super organized. Um, I mean, their, their coaching staff for me is like a younger version of the Virginia staff, you know, like the Virginia staff is a little bit more experienced top to bottom, and it's elite, but, you know, they have equally as good a coaching staff, just a little bit younger. Um, you got NC State. Uh, I think the world of those guys, um, you know, Hart and Chrysler are awesome coaches. They always hit. I mean, those guys wake up out of bed and they hit. They hit and they hit some more. You know, I've never seen a Chris Hart uh, offense not hit. And, you know, I think that Clint Chrysler's a really good job of, like, cross-counting, using soft. He calls a really good game. His guys always throw strikes. And it seems like they brought in a little bit more firepower, which is scary because, like, they always threw strikes. They've always competed. They always have plus change-ups. And now they got a bunch of guys throwing 95. And that guy's a master at getting guys to throw change-ups for strikes and cross count. So they're going to be really tough. Clemson, like, those guys – I mean, those, that staff did an amazing job last year, basically revamped and re- rejuvenized the whole program. Jimmy Bellinger is an excellent pitching coach. Guy calls a phenomenal game. They're tough to game plan. Gets guys to pitch inside. They got like their whole bullpen returning. They got a game changer in Canarella. They got Wright, who's been there. I think it's Wright, right? The third baseman. Is that his last name? That guy's been there for like 20 years. Like he's a quality at bat machine. Um, they're going to be tough. You know, Backage always wins. He's won for a decade now. And they have a really good coaching staff. I think that's the biggest thing, you know, and then you throw Florida State in there. I think the world link Jarrett, he's an awesome coach. The guy's a winner. He always finds a way to get him better. They're going to, they're going to exceed a lot of expectations this year. He's going to make them good. You know, um, they brought in more talent. 
he has another year in their system. So you're looking at all those teams. I mean, I just think I just rattled off like seven teams. And the common denominator with everyone I just mentioned is they have awesome coaching staffs. We're talking about high-level baseball coaches, really elite baseball coaches that have an immense amount of passion for what they do. They're super skilled. They've had a high level of success. They run great organizations. They run great programs. They game plan. They're prepared. And then they have great brands that bring in great talent, you know? So I think every single team that I just mentioned there, and I'm probably missing one or two, but every team I just mentioned there has an opportunity to go to Omaha, has an opportunity to play for national championship, has an opportunity to win the ACC. I mean, you're going into a league where you got seven teams you think you could, you know, if they're playing the best baseball at the right time, that can get to Omaha, you know, he better be on your A game, you know? So I think that's my favorite thing about being in this league is like you just get to compete against really good coaches all the time, you know, and uh, I think it makes you better. You know, I think when you have to, you have to be on top of your game, it, it pushes you to be the best version of yourself. And that's probably my favorite part is I like, I like all the little rivalries. I love the, the other coaching staffs and how they compete. I like how it's not that bad of a travel <laughs> to go to each place. You know, it's, it's a pretty close proximity. The cool thing about being in North Carolina, I said this, you know, I've always lived like near major metropolitan areas and it's always pro driven. But the coolest thing about North Carolina is like, even in Winston, like you drive down the street and you're going to see a Wake flag, an NC State flag, a Duke flag, an ECU flag, an App State flag, maybe a Carolina flag. You don't see any pro flags. People don't talk about professional sports. It's all college. And that's what's so cool about it. And that's what I think makes the rivalry in the games that much better. So I'm a huge fan of the league. I'm a huge fan of everything it brings to the table. I hope that we can find a way to remedy all the craziness of the ACC talk, because I think it's really a treasure. And I think it's a really unique and special, special place to be, you know, so. No doubt. That's kind of how Mike and I feel about the ACC, two guys that grew up in ACC country. Uh, we know how special the conference is and how uh, the baseball programs just around the conference have just skyrocketed into this elite level. The last five, 10 years has been insane. Um, but Moose, that's all I have. I think that's all that Micah has. We okay, appreciate actually, one more on. quick question. Oh, okay, go ahead, Micah. Sorry. Since we're talking the schedule, I, I've been meaning to ask because I've, if you've listened to the show, Moose, I've mentioned to Nick a thousand times that I think it's amazing, and I'm so intrigued by it. You're one of the the schools that I, I like to say their ego doesn't come to the door when it comes to scheduling. Like this year, you're going to North Carolina A and T, and obviously, when you talk about facilities in college baseball, no one knows anything about North Carolina A and T's ballpark. You know, you do this season. You know, you're starting the year off with. I think what seven different teams in your first nine games, something like that. You know, I know you do those preseason kind of not tournaments, but like the round robins with Illinois and Akron and Fordham and so on and so forth. You know, is there is there a reason behind that? I know last year, I think you guys did one in April, I believe, where you had like Western Carolina and a couple other schools, Elon kind of come over and like you basically had a new opponent every single day. Um, you know, it's funny, I work for ETSU, we play Binghamton two days before you all play them because that's kind of why they're playing us is they're coming over to play you all. You know, what is, 
Is there a reason behind, you know, maybe why you schedule maybe not a three-game series with a bunch of these non-con teams, but maybe invite them down where they still get three games, but they get to see three different teams, three different lineups. You know, is there some strategy behind that, or is it just kind of a just kind of happens to be that way? To be honest with you, it's probably a better coach uh, question for Coach Walt. He handles all the scheduling. Um, that being said, I do know that you know if we're really going to get in the weeds, and I can't speak as to why or how he does it, but I do know that logistically, when you play a myriad of teams, it's a little bit better for your RPI. You don't ever take a hit on one game when you can spread it out. Um, and I know that that's super advantageous. I remember when I was at St. John's in 2017, we got an at-large bid. And one of the reasons we had the RPI that we did is we played so many different teams, a lot of neutral and road sites. I think that's why we play a lot of midweek games on the road. Um, it, you know, those road midweek games are helpful um, for your RPI. It's also get it's also really advantageous to get guys out of their comfort zone. Um, Walt, if you know him, is also like one of the best people you're ever going to meet. So I think he tries to be fair as much as possible. I think that comes into it. So I, I couldn't give you like all the specifics on it. I've we've never really like chopped it up. Um, I'll tell you that someone like myself, who's very OCD on game planning. Um, borderline manic it's it's uh it's not fun to play seven teams in nine in nine games because it's a lot of scattered sports and i treat midweek games the same way as i do a friday night game you know i prepare the same way for every game so i personally don't love it because it's a lot more work um but again like anything uh if you're if you're putting more time and effort and you're putting more work in you get better at your craft you know like I've said this before on other podcasts, but I used to be a horrendous game caller, a horrendous game manager, and Coach Blankmeyer let me know it. And um, I, it wasn't until I got to Maryland where we had synergy for the first time and I could really break down film and try to understand and game plan that I got better at calling a game. And now I would say that it's one of my strengths, but the strength has been derived from my greatest weakness and my insecurity against my greatest weakness. And so if you can lean into your weaknesses and really dissect them and put hours and time into it, you get better. And so, again, I try to look at things in, you know, a different lens as much as I can. And so rather than be frustrated that we have seven scouting reports and nine games, I look at it as an opportunity to get better at our systems. You know, I look at it as an opportunity to get better at seeing patterns and strategy, you know, so. I don't know if I can answer that question, really, to be honest with you. And I don't I don't really worry about it. I'm I'm like the most anti look at the schedule person ever. I really try to look at the next opponent and I don't really care who we play because everybody's good. I respect all the teams we play. So, like, I don't care if we're playing, you know, LSU or we're playing, you know, fairly ridiculous university in you know, Spokane, Washington. I don't know. Like, I don't care. It doesn't matter to me. Like, it's a game. We're going to try to win it. We're going to prepare the same way. I think where you get into trouble is when you don't respect your opponent and you don't respect the game and you think you're bigger than the game and you think you're you're better than your opponent, that's when it bites you in the ass, you know? And um, 
I have a responsibility to my players. I have a responsibility to the university. I have a responsibility to my family that I prepare the same way every day. And if I can't do that, then I'm a hypocrite because that's what I'm asking my players to do. So I guess for me, it's, it's probably a good thing that we play a lot of people, you know, just makes you better at what you do. I never thought about it from the RPI perspective. So you may not have been able to obviously give you know every detail of, of why Illinois and Akron and, and Fordham are all coming the first weekend of the season. That That is, I never thought about that. You know, again, the, the why you go on the road for some of those games. I know Nick and I's first ball game together last year was the App State game in Boone. So, you know, that was – also, I think it's kind of fun because you get everyone's best shot. I mean, I know last year when we were at Boone, I mean, that game felt like a tournament game. I, I might be speaking differently. You know, maybe you felt differently in the clubhouse. But I know the App State students definitely let the dugout here at every chance they got. And, you know, it was the largest crowd in App State baseball history. I mean, it was it – was, it was, it didn't obviously compare to the super regionals at the couch, but, you know, it felt like a game that mattered, not just, you know, a normal Tuesday or Wednesday night game that people just kind of shrug their shoulders if you just follow college baseball casually. So I appreciate that. Insight, no, that's but- fun. I, I think that those experiences are, are what it's all about. You know, I, I've been fortunate enough to coach teams that played in some hostile environments. There's very few environments that are more hostile than East Carolina. They had the pirates have the most raucous crowd ever. And it has been for seemingly forever, but I can tell you that when I go back and talk to my old players and we chop it up and we get together, a lot of times we talk about all the crazy things fans say to us, you know, it's funny. Like you block it out during the game, but man, it's like, it's pretty entertaining and it leaves a great story. And the app state fans, the student section was pretty aggressive and they said a lot of things and I can assure you that our guys felt that in the dugout and it it fueled them and it's a good thing you know and uh, I think it adds to the environment another place that was pretty uh pretty rowdy last year was Louisville on Friday night um they really got after our bullpen in fact I think they they had to bring the police over at one point like that was pretty aggressive um but I actually love it I think it's great like I, 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 I enjoy it. Maybe I'm sick. I don't know. But like that stuff doesn't ever bother me. I feel like if someone's going to scream and yell at you and say all those things, like they're showing you that it matters. They're showing you that, that you have some real estate in their head, you know, and that's what makes it fun. So I, I like it. I think it's great for the game. I think it's, it's, it's what it's all about, right? It's fandom, you know, like, so I, I, I would love every game we play to be raucous and rowdy, and I think it's good for everybody. It's good for the sport. Absolutely, I agree. Well, Nick, anything else? If not, Nick, you can go ahead and kind of wrap this up. No, Moose, it's been a pleasure, as always. Um, Omaha was so much fun seeing you and seeing the guys, and you guys were, like, welcomed Mike and I like family if we went out or we saw you guys at the ballpark. It was so much fun. Um, one month away. I can't wait. It's going to be great. I'll be there. You know, the DOA family will be there opening day. Uh, it's going to be a lot of fun, but, uh, I appreciate the time a lot. You're the man. You have a great family. Love your wife. Love your kids. They're the best. Um, and thanks again. You're the man. Thanks for having me. I'd be, I'd be remiss if I didn't say anyone that ever comes to Winston-Salem, if you don't hit up the you're making a mistake. So. <laughs> Especially when they put the moose on the menu.
That's yeah. what I'm saying. I've been saying it for a while. We got We got to get it up on the board. You know. We'll get it. We'll get it on the board. We'll get it on the board. <laughs> Sounds good, guys. All right, you guys have a great day. I'll see you soon. All right, see you, Moose. Thank, Thank you. you.